What do you think of prophets and prophesying? Uh, When I was a new Christian, the church I attended had a special evening service with the local Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel, not the Calvary Chapel. The Calvary Chapel is something different. Don't ask me. um, I don't know why we did. I just, I guess out of ecumenicalism. But at the end of the service, a woman stood up and in a monotone droned on and on. And I thought, what is this? And after the service, I asked our pastor, I said, Pastor Bob, what just happened? And he said, about in the same tone of voice that I did, or or felt the same way I did, he said, um, she was prophesying. We never had another service with uh, uh, Calvary Chapel again. And uh, because when I, now when I think of prophets, I think of someone like Elijah, a mighty prophet. And we know what the standard was for the Old Testament prophets. You were 100% correct or you were 100% dead. Elijah was filled with the power of God. Wicked King Ahab, and he was a pretty wicked king, had all of God's prophets put to death, put to the sword, and only Elijah had survived. And that wasn't good enough for Ahab because he was looking throughout his country and nearby countries, searching for Elijah so that he could be rid of all the prophets of Israel. Elijah decided to stop running from Ahab, and in 1 Kings 18.17, it says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. And some things never change. You know, in the world today, we are, you and I are the troublers of the United States. We are the cause to the rest of the country. Christians are the cause of trouble in the United States. God and we are in the wrong. We are the troublers. Just as Ahab said, the troublers of Israel, we are the troublers of the world. So Elijah sets the stage for a final showdown. The last prophet of God against the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. And it was not, as they say, a fair, fair fight. It was not fair odds. He proposed a trial by burnt offerings. Each side got a bull. He allowed the false prophets to go first. And here's what happens. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it. And called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And 
They limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Today we call this trash talking. You might think it undignified for a prophet of God to uh, engage in it and to use the language he used, but ridicule is a powerful tool. Going on, it says, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. It appears that the false prophets were, after all, false prophets. Then Elijah tells the people, Come over to me. And they came near to him, and he built an altar of 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. And verse 32 says, And he made a trench about the altar, as great as wood contained two seahs of wood of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. I think you can uh, see what's coming here. Everything is soaking wet. The, the bull is soaking wet. The wood is soaking wet. It's lying in a soaking wet trench full of water. If the sacrifice does burn, it won't be because of human effort. Verses 36 through 40 say... And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, just to make sure that we got it all covered here, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought down them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, that's a prophet. That's not some woman standing up at the end of a church service and saying banalities. Or how about Jeremiah called the weeping prophet for 40 years? Jeremiah called Israel to repentance. After just several years of preaching... (laughs) His old family was trying to kill him. Now, I I like a preacher like that. His own family sets out to kill him. Over time, he was whipped. He was put in the stocks. He was attacked by a mob. He was threatened by the king. He was ridiculed. He was arrested and beaten and accused of treason, thrown in jail, and then thrown in a deep well. No one listened to him. For 40 years, 
He had no one believe him and not one convert. But still he continued with the ministry God had given him. Now, see, that's a prophet, you know, it, like I say. Or maybe consider Jonah. God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh, that old wicked town. No, never mind, we won't get into the song. My kids know it. But Jonah headed in the opposite direction. Because the people of Nineveh were the enemy of his people, and Jonah hated them. After the delay of a boat trip and a great deal of really fresh sushi, Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, and Jonah 3.4 says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So the worst thing that could happen to Jonah possibly had happened. His enemy has repented. Chapter 4 goes, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? I love that. He knows exactly who God is. He knows God will forgive a repentant heart. And he was trying to get away from going and preaching. So Jonah goes out to the desert to die. I mean, he's taking this really pretty badly. But God makes a plant to grow up to shade him. And Jonah was happy with the plant and to sit in the shade. But the next day, God had a worm eat the plant. Verse 8 begins, And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. And I want to dwell on the also much cattle. I don't know where that came from. Also much cattle, but 120,000 people and also much cattle. Proving maybe only that a prophet's job is to speak God's word and do God's will even when he doesn't understand why. So those men were obviously prophets. And as I say, don't get me going about Isaiah, about Isaiah. But what about the man who wrote the lines, Give ear to my word, O Lord, consider my meditations, or the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What beautiful language. Or unto you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul, O my God, I trust in thee. Was the man who wrote nearly half of the Psalms in the bottom? Bible, merely a poet, a songwriter? Or was he 
an Old Testament prophet of God. Today in our passage from Acts, we're going to be looking at that. Two weeks ago, we saw Peter quoting the prophet Joel to make the point that the gift of the Holy Spirit ushered in the last days. Last week, as, as per the way of apostolic preaching, he recited the facts of Jesus' ministry. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with many mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, Peter returns to the Old Testament to bring out what King David has to say about the Messiah a thousand years beforehand. The whole passage goes, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Here Peter quotes the last five verses of Psalm 16. Now, you might ask how this is about the Messiah. Because, you know, David wrote about a lot of the things he was going through. And a lot of people think that this is a Psalm of David. Except that we'll see next week that it can't possibly be. Next week, the verses that we're going to cover say, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did flesh see corruption." Peter says here that David, being therefore a prophet, this is the only place in the Bible that David is called a prophet. This is it. We didn't really need Peter to tell us that, even though, like I say, this is the only time in the Bible that it explicitly says it in so many words. But in Matthew 22, starting in verse 15, we have a a battle of, well, I was going to say wits, but um, Jesus wasn't trying to be witty. And uh, if the Sadducees, Pharisees, Herodians came to the battle of wits, as they say, they came unarmed. Matthew 22, starting in verse 15, says... Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. Now the Herodians were a Jewish political party and supported King Herod and therefore supported the Romans. And if they could trick Jesus, they might have a way to get him. And they said, 
We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you not, do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So the Herodians didn't have any answer. Jesus gave them a perfect answer to their question about who they should pay taxes to. Next, the Sadducees took their shot at Jesus. The same day, I think this was a little bit coordinated, don't you? The same day, the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So, two, the second, and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died in the resurrection. Therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, I've had children ask me questions like this in my time. I probably didn't have a good answer. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So the Herodians were down, and so are the Sadducees. Now it's the Pharisees' turn up to bat. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the Pharisees had no comeback, and they had no quarrel with what he said. Now, When the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And I'll bet they didn't ask him any more questions, but look at what Jesus says about King David. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? It's in the spirit. These are words used of a prophet. In truth, every psalmist is considered a prophet by the Jews. Every last one of those that were composed, they considered them to be prophets. They weren't just songwriters. They weren't just poets. They were delivering what the Lord had given them to say. And now that we've established the prophetic bona fides of David, let's look at this quote from Psalm 16. Once again, our passage for today, starting at verse 22, minute, Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then he goes on to say, I saw the Lord, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter here links Psalm 16 to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I saw the Lord always before me. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was facing arrest and ultimately execution, Jesus was always looking to the Father. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them asleep and said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he goes away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he found them sleeping. So leaving them for a third time, he went away and prayed, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples, found them asleep. Indeed, he saw that the Lord was ever before him. And the Father's presence strengthened him for the ordeal that was to come. The next verse says, For he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. To talk about the right hand is to talk about strength. Most people are right-handed, denoting the hand of their greatest strength. 
in the days of the highwaymen. Men walked on the highway side, on the left side of the road, when they were with a woman, so that the right hand could use the sword if a passing horseman or stranger attacked. There are at least 100 verses in the Bible about the power of God's right hand, and they stretch from Exodus to Revelation. The right hand of God is the pinnacle of strength and capability. It continues on, David talking about the Messiah, Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. Jesus was able to rejoice in his impending trials because he knew the Father was leading him. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 repeats that. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For everyone there is more to come than earthly trials, for the joy of the Lord that was set before him. Jesus faced his death with confidence in the Father. Verse 26b says, And flesh also will dwell in hope. All men who trust in God dwell in hope. And it's not the uh, hope that is unsure of the outcome. I I really hope, you know, this goes well. It's not, you know, the, uh, the hope that you have when you choose a lottery ticket or move to the beach or buy a yacht. This hope, the hope we have in God is Jesus, in Jesus is a sure thing, but a yearning nevertheless. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Hades here is the Greek equivalent to Gehenna or Sheol. Uh, It is not what we would call hell. It's the place where souls are gathered before judgment. And it says here that God will not allow Jesus' soul to be abandoned or left in Hades. Now, this passage applies to David as well as it does to all of us. Our hope, our prayer, our confidence is that God will not abandon us. David here also says that God's Holy One, the Messiah, should not see corruption, would not see corruption, the decay of the flesh in the grave. Remembering back to when Jesus went, hearing that Lazarus had died, and he went and um, one of Lazarus, he commanded the stone to be rolled away from the tomb. And one of Lazarus' sisters said, Lord, it's been three days. He will smell. He will stink. Because he had seen the corruption of the grave. With Jesus, unlike with man, there would be no decay, no stench, because he would not be left to see corruption. He says, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 
Some commenters are surprised that Peter quotes verse 11 of Psalm 16 here about the paths of life. But John MacArthur says that it makes perfect sense. After all, what are the paths of life but the paths we are now on that will lead to eternal life and the resurrection of our bodies at the resurrection of the dead. And ultimately... For Jesus the Messiah, for King David, the prophet king, and for us, the adopted children of God, what would fill us with gladness more than the resurrection from death and to be in God's presence? Is that not the purpose of the Christian life? I mean, it perfectly says what what is to come. As I come to closing this message... A thought had come to mind. Uh, there has been, in the last 160-year history of the Congressional Medal of Honor, just two sets of father and son awardees of the Medal of Honor. You might wonder why I bring that up. I'm going to get to it. You will know both the names of these two families. One was named MacArthur, Arthur MacArthur. He was 18 when he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for actions in the Civil War. His son, Douglas MacArthur, was twice nominated for the Medal of Honor before finally being awarded it in World War II. He was awarded it for our uh, adventures in Mexico in 1914, and he was nominated in World War I before finally being awarded it in World War II. But the other pair, and that's where I'm going with this, the other pair are even more famous. Teddy Roosevelt was the 26th president of the United States, but before that was celebrated for leading the charge up Kettle Hill with the Rough Riders in the uh, Spanish-American War. Now, he was nominated for the uh, Medal of Honor during the war, but Can you believe this? The generals didn't like his showboating. And uh, it was not put through until 2001. As a politician, he was the assistant secretary of the Navy. He was the governor of New York. He was the vice president. And then he was president. He has been described as a politician playing at soldiering. Now, his son, Teddy Roosevelt Jr., however, Oh, and I should explain this. Teddy Roosevelt Jr. wasn't Teddy Roosevelt Jr. He was a Teddy Roosevelt III because Teddy Roosevelt wasn't Teddy Roosevelt Sr. He was Teddy Roosevelt II. Teddy Roosevelt III had a Teddy Roosevelt IV, just to let you know. But his son, Teddy Roosevelt Jr., was described as being a warrior who played at politics after uh, receiving the Distinguished Service Cross in World War I, he became the only general to go in the first wave on the invasion of Normandy. Five-star General Omar Bradley said the bravest action he had ever seen in all of his service was Teddy Roosevelt Jr. on Utah Beach. For that, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. I brought all this up. Because a lot of people say in commentaries that King David was a great king who dabbled 
as a prophet. Is that a true description? Was he a king or a prophet? Because we really do celebrate his kingship more. We, to, to this day, Israel considers him the greatest king that they have ever had. We saw a few weeks ago that uh, Hezekiah was considered number two, but King David was considered the greatest. But was he a king or was he a prophet? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. We've seen today that Peter called him a prophet out loud. We've seen that Jesus talked of David speaking in the spirit. Hebrews 11.32 has the author, <clears throat> Paul, <clears throat> saying, and what more shall I say? For, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets. And there are two distinct groups there that, uh, that the author of Hebrews is talking about. The first four names are judges of Israel. The last group, David, Samuel, and the prophets. He lumps in with the prophets. Now, once again, this is a New Testament quote. So all of our quotes have been New Testament quotes, unless you want to say that Jesus was an Old Testament prophet, which we could say. But was there any Old Testament? What was the Old Testament view? Well, the Babylonian Talmud is the authoritative tradition of rabbinical Judaism. And a quote from there says, the Gemara, and that's a section of the Talmud, the Gemara poses a question. Who were the early prophets? Rav Huma, and that's a writer of the Talmud, says, and this is all a quote from the Talmud, this is referring to David, Samuel, and Solomon. So rabbinical tradition are the, are the writings of the rabbis in Old Testament times said that it was that David, Samuel, and Solomon were all prophets. Josephus, who was no f- real fan of Jews, though he was Jewish, wrote that the divine power departed from Saul and removed to David, who upon this removal of the divine spirit to him began to prophesy. So that's Josephus, and it's not biblical, but it's Old Testament times. He goes on that after reciting David's life, he wrote that God had shown all things that were to come to pass to David. Many of those things had already come to pass, and the rest would certainly come to pass. And one last one. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Number 11QPSA, so you can look it up, okay? If you've got a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Says, all these David spoke through the spirit of prophecy which had given to him from before the Most High. And the sentence doesn't make sense, and I wrote it correctly. So, one more time. All these David spoke through the spirit of prophecy which had given to him from before the Most High. 
Perhaps those questioning David being a prophet, just dabbling as a prophet, had it backwards. David may have been a prophet who was dabbling at being a king because he did them both, and he did them both well. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the example of Scripture to help us straighten out what is unclear to us normally through our normal understanding. We, we thank you that Scripture enlightens Scripture. We thank you that we can study these things. We thank you that you sent us people like the prophets and David, Jeremiah, Jonah, that not only could we learn through their prophecies and their works, but also through their lives and their failings. And we have looked at those in a number of instances in David's life or in, in Jeremiah's life or Jonah's. We just pray that you would keep enlightening us through your word as we work on through this book of Acts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.